The sermon for, text for today is Revelation chapter 22, and we'll read verses 6 through 21 yet again, uh, but we'll focus only on the last portion of this passage. Uh, this here is the conclusion to the book of Revelation, and so uh, let us give our attention now to the reading of God's most holy word, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. And he said to me, that is, uh, the angel said to John, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, these being the words of Christ. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, Christ says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to eat the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Friends, this will be the last sermon in our study of the book of Revelation. I've very much enjoyed this study. I've enjoyed studying this book myself and also preaching through it. Uh, Some of you have said, it feels as if we've regained a book of the Bible. And I couldn't agree more with that statement. Uh, This book at one time seemed very confusing to me. It also seemed to be rather impractical. Uh, But now I see it as clear and also as immensely helpful to the people of God. And I pray that you have the same opinion of it now, that it is relatively clear, not without its difficulties, of course, but clear uh, and immensely helpful to us as we sojourn in this world. This book grew more and more clear as I shed my premillennial and dispensational presuppositions. I think that is true of many of you as well. Those unbiblical systems of doctrine do not fit with what is revealed in this book, and so interpreting the book with those doctrinal presuppositions felt a bit like trying to pound a square peg into a round hole. That's the sense that I got as a uh, premillennialist when I opened the pages of the book of Revelation. How does this all fit? I I could not make sense of it for many years. 
But recognizing and shedding those presuppositions was very important, I think, in coming to the book of Revelation and being able to understand it and its importance for us. The book of Revelation also grew more clear as I began to receive it on its own terms. It is apocalyptic literature which communicates truth via symbol. It is ordered not chronologically, but it recapitulates or repeats over and over again. And the book has to do not only with the time of the very end, as many suppose, but with the whole time in between Christ's first and second comings. Again, we should receive the book on its own terms instead of trying to press it into a man-made mold. And the book grew more clear as we began to see that the key to the proper interpretation of it was the rest of Scripture. How do we know what the symbolism of the book of Revelation means? We must look to the rest of Scripture to help us understand it. How do we know what, that we are interpreting a particular passage in the book of Revelation correctly? Well, we do so by interpreting the individual passages in light of the rest of Scripture and particularly the Old Testament. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, these are important interpretive principles uh, that we will need to take with us into our study of the book of Genesis, uh, which will begin in late April, uh, Lord willing. We must beware of our presuppositions when it comes to that book. We must take care to interpret Scripture passages according to their genre and in their own terms, according to their own terms. And we must also interpret every individual Scripture text in light of every other Scripture text. We are handling God's Word here, and it is God's Word from beginning to end. And so, though there are many books who are written by many different authors, there is really one author to the books of Scripture, and that is God Himself. All Scripture is inspired by God. Therefore, we must allow Scripture to in interpret Scripture always. There is one story, one coherent story being told here from Genesis to Revelation. When all is said and done, I give thanks to God for this book, for the book of Revelation. Uh, indeed, it has proven to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. And I hope that you agree. It's a book to be lived by. I think it is actually appropriate that we conclude our study of the book of Revelation on Resurrection Sunday. It is on this day that our culture remembers the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I do this every Lord's Day, don't we? For that is the tempo that God has set for our worship. The tempo that He has set is not once per year, but once every seven days. It is then that we are to gather. We are to set apart one day out of seven as holy unto our God and to our Lord. From the creation of the world to the resurrection of Christ, that day was Saturday because of God's original creation. But from the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world, the day is Sunday because of not the original creation, but because of the new creation. Christ did earn and usher in a new creation when He rose from the grave. When Christ rose from the grave on Sunday, He finished His work of the new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it is because of Christ's finished work that we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3.13. That new heavens and earth has been described to us beautifully in the book of Revelation. Christ, by His finished work, has brought about a new creation. We gather, therefore, every Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, or the Christian Sabbath, because Christ finished His new creation work when He rose from the dead 
on that day. We remember the central event of Christ's resurrection each Lord's Day. Therefore, it would be appropriate for us, brothers and sisters, then to greet one another each Sunday with the words, He is risen and He is risen indeed. For that is the event uh, that causes us, that, that necessitates our gathering together one day out of seven, in particular on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. He rose from the grave, and we are to worship Him such in such way, in such a way. How appropriate that we conclude our study of this glorious book, a book that has Christ and His finished work at the center of it on Resurrection Sunday. Indeed, Christ is the focus of the text that is before us today. Um, as you know, the book of Revelation concludes with a series of five exhortations to holy living. We've considered three already in previous sermons, and they are these. One, in verse 7, blessing is pronounced on the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, This book, the book of Revelation, is to be kept. What is revealed here is to be obeyed. The Christian is to live according to the truth set forth in the book of Revelation. Two, in verse 9, the Christian is exhorted to worship God alone. All who are not in Christ commit idolatry continuously. They worship something, that is, that is for sure, but they do not worship the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, for the only way to come to Him and to worship Him is through faith in Jesus the Christ whom he sent, he himself did say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John fourteen six. And so all who are not in Christ, who do not have faith in him, and who do not come to the Father through the Christ, commit idolatry continually as they worship some created thing instead of the creator of all things. They bow down before something that they have made into a god either a material thing or something that they have crafted in their mind and in their heart. They are idolaters. But the Christian is also prone to commit idolatry. We too, uh, though we be worshipers of the one true God as we come to Him through faith in Christ Jesus, are continuously tempted to bow down to things that are not God. In my opinion, brothers and sisters, the the Christian church in the world today is plagued with idolatry. It's a constant threat that comes to us. It's a constant source of temptation. We are constantly tempted to compromise in our worship of God, to worship Him in ways that He has not prescribed, or to worship things that are not God at all. We are constantly tempted in this manner. This we must be careful not to do. We are to worship God alone. Three, In verse 11, the righteous are exhorted to do right and the holy to be holy. Have you been made right with God through faith in Christ? I hope that you have. Have you been made holy by His shed blood? I hope that you have. Then do right and be holy. That is the thing that we are being exhorted to do here in uh, verse 11 of Revelation 22. We are to live out what we already are in Christ Jesus. Uh, To use Paul's language... Having been set free from sin, we are to be slaves of righteousness now. Has Christ set you free from sin? Then go on as a servant of Christ, as a slave of Christ, be slaves of righteousness, Romans 6, 18. Are you living right according to God's law? Are you uh, living holy before Him, having been made righteous and holy through faith in Jesus, who is the Christ? 
The fourth exhortation to holiness is found in verses 13 through 17. Uh, This is new and is no longer review. But here in verses 13 through 17, see that a blessing is pronounced upon those who wash their robes. A blessing is pronounced upon those who wash their robes. Listen now to verse 13. Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Notice that in this passage here, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These are magnificent titles that Christ applies to himself here in this passage. God himself has already been called the Alpha and Omega in the book of of Revelation. In 1.8 we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty And so God himself has already referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. In 21.6, it was him who sat upon the heavenly throne, that is God, who said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. And so this saying here would be like our saying, I am am the A and I am the Z. Uh, It is another way of saying that God is the first and the last the beginning, and the end. All of these titles that we have encountered here are used in the Old Testament, but applied to God himself. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But here Christ picks them up and applies them to himself. And so we are to see that these are magnificent titles that Christ applies to himself here. He is is stating his deity. What is said of God can be said of Jesus the Christ, for he is God come in the flesh, the second person of the triune God. God himself is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last, and so too is Christ. He shares this in common with God, for he himself is God, the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh. Christ is the Alpha, the first and the beginning of creation. Jesus the Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, was in the beginning at creation. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says this concerning Jesus the Christ, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. This is referring not to God the Father, but to to the Christ, to Jesus the Christ, the second person of the triune God, come in the flesh. It is appropriate then that Christ claims to be the Alpha, the first, and the beginning, for all things were created through Him, by Him, and for Him. He is their source. And Christ is also the Omega, the last and the end of creation. He is the one who will bring this 
created world to its God-ordained end. When he returns, he will judge. When he returns, this world will be rendered with fire. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last of creation. But Christ is also the Alpha, the first and the beginning of the new creation. When, when did Christ bring the new creation into existence? It was at his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When Christ rose from the grave, God's new creation did break in upon this old, sin-sick creation. Why does there need to be a new creation, brothers and sisters, except for that this first one has been marred by sin, it has been given over to death and to destruction, yet God in His mercy has determined to bring in a new creation, a renewed one, where righteousness will dwell. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So when I ask the question, when did the new creation begin? You might be tempted to say, well, it is not here yet. We will only see it when Christ returns. We will only see it in the future, after that last day. But indeed, the new creation is here now, because Christ is risen. He has defeated death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered all of His and our enemies. And then we, therefore, are able to taste of the new creation even now. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Christ rose from the grave, He earned the new heavens and the new earth. Though they are not here yet, they belong to Him. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world, Hebrews 1-2 says. Therefore, according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, Second Peter 3 13. The new creation, brothers and sisters, began at Christ's first coming, at His death, at His burial, at His resurrection. It is here now. You are a new creation in Christ, for it is His. He has earned it, having been made the heir of all things. Christ is the Alpha, the first, and the beginning of the new creation also. Not just the natural world, but also the new creation that He earned by His death, burial, and resurrection. And Christ is the Omega, the last and the end of the new creation as well. When He returns, He will make all things new. When He returns, He will establish the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Truly, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, just as Revelation twenty-two thirteen says. Everything does start and end with Him. And He is the Sovereign Lord of all things from beginning to end. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him, Matthew 28, 18. And so as the Alpha Creator and the Omega Consummator, Christ has the right to pronounce this seventh blessing of the book of Revelation, doesn't He? He is Sovereign Lord. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And He therefore has the right to pronounce this blessing, the seventh blessing that is found in the book of Revelation upon uh, upon those who belong to Him. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. It is Christ who is able to grant entrance into the new heavens and the new earth symbolized here by this city. He has earned this by His obedient life 
and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. It is Christ who is able to grant access to the tree of life. This should take us all the way back to the very beginning of the, of the Bible, right? When we first heard of that tree of life that was held out to Adam and to Eve, they never ate of it. They didn't make it. They forfeited the right. The first Adam and all his descendants were barred from this tree, having been given over to the curse of death. But the second Adam, Christ our Lord, has earned access to this tree, not only for himself, but for all who are in him. He does bring us along if we have faith in him. We are under him and in him. Uh, The question that was asked to our little ones earlier uh, in the service today is an important one. Are you in Adam? That is the first Adam. Or are you in Christ? To be in Adam, the first Adam, means that you do not have access to this tree of life. You cannot enter into uh, the the holy city, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. You are under him and in him and under his curse, the curse that was pronounced upon him. We also taste of it. But there is a second Adam. He is Christ Jesus, our Lord, and how important it is that we are found in Him. For if we are in Him, then we do have access to this tree of life. We will be granted entrance into this holy city. But do you see that access will be granted only to those who have washed their robes? Only to those who have washed their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Wash your robes is the thing that you are being compelled to do here in this passage. Friends, by nature, your robes are filthy and sin-stained. That is the truth of the matter. By nature, your robes are filthy and sin-stained. And no one who is clothed in filth will be permitted to enter the holy city to eat of the tree of life. You absolutely must be washed. You are not fit to enter into this holy city and to eat of the tree of life. As you are now clothed, your robes are filthy and sin-stained, and we are to be washed. But how does someone wash their robes? Here we are commanded to wash our robes, and blessings are pronounced upon those who do, but, but how can our filthy robes be made clean? A vision that we encountered earlier in this book helps us to know how. Back in Revelation 7, 9, John saw a different vision, of course. He looked, and and here is what he saw. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And, and, And here is how they were dressed. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, they sung, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed John, And he asked them this question, John, who are these? Do you know who these are, John? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And here was John's response to the elder who addressed him, Sir, you know. In other words, sir, you tell me where these have come from. And he said to John, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
The only way to wash your sin-stained robes is to wash them in the crimson blood of Jesus the Christ, crucified and risen. Sounds like a strange thing to use for detergent, doesn't it? But it is the only detergent capable of washing the filth of our sin away. It is the only detergent capable of making our sin-stained robes white. We must acknowledge our sin. We must turn from our sin. We must look to Christ. We must have faith in Him. And when we have faith in Him, then His blood does wash all of our sin away. To have faith in Jesus is to abandon all hope in self and to rely entirely upon Him for our salvation. This world is filled with people who are very busy trying to make themselves clean trying to make themselves white, thinking that they can do it themselves. The, the image that came to mind was that of a child who had gotten into some trouble, you know, goes out into the backyard or something and finds some mud to play in. And, and so there is the child, imagine them maybe in their, their Resurrection Sunday garb doing this, you know, just to add to the drama of it. But there they are, just rolling in the mud. Can a child like that make themselves clean? No, they need help. They need someone outside of them to come and to make them clean. The more that they try to clean themselves up, the messier things get. But for that child to just surrender and to lift up their arms and say, Mom or Dad, help me. I'm filthy. Make me clean. Then there's hope for that one. This world is filled with people who are there filthy in their filth, and they're trying to make themselves clean, but they're only making matters worse continually. We must look to God. We must look to Christ and say, Christ, I am helpless on my own. Make me clean. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we shall be made clean. Come now, let us reason together, God says. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How will this be? It's through the shed blood of Jesus the Christ and through faith in Him that we are made clean. The, the old hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, puts it very well. What can wash away my sin is the question that is asked. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is the answer. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is true. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Left to yourself, friends, you will not have access to this tree of life. You will not enter into the holy city, which is the new heavens and the new earth, because your garments are filthy and sin-stained. Outside of the city that is barred from the new heavens and the new earth, which means in hell, are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Uh, really, this is quite a list of sins. It's quite a description of the one not in Christ. Uh, the sins listed here seem to have been chosen to discourage the one who professes faith in Christ from compromising in their profession. I'm not going to take long here to tease all of this out, but you know, many sins could have been chosen uh, to describe uh, the, the, 
the one who will be left outside the city when Christ returns. But this verse is a reminder that it is only those who have been washed white who will enter the new heavens and the new earth. All those who have been washed will go on to live. Uh, all those who have been washed will, will not go on to live in unrepentant sin, I think is the meaning here. Have you been washed? Well, then it's going to translate into a change of life so that uh, you are no longer described as being these things. Those who practice sorcery, who live sexually immoral lives, who commit murder either in the heart or in reality, and who are idolaters, should not expect to enter the city gates to eat of the tree of life, but should expect to be barred from the city, that is, to suffer the pains of hell. I think there are many who claim to be Christian in this world, who go to church with some regularity, and yet their lives are characterized by these things that are here described. Their lives are filled with idolatrous things. Uh, Their lives are filled with lies. Their lives are filled with false worship. Their lives are filled with hatred and all manner of sin. They are adulterers. They are idolaters. Uh, Those who live in this way, in an unrepentant manner, should not expect to enter into the city or to eat from the tree of life. It is not that we earn entrance by our good works, but is that those who have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb are also going to be changed and transformed so that they are no longer these things that are listed here before us. Brothers and sisters, it is true that your salvation is received by the grace of God alone. That is true, through faith in Christ alone. It is true also that you cannot earn your salvation, not at the beginning, not in the middle, and not at the end. When you... When you sin, you do not lose your salvation, and you should take comfort in that. As if salvation were by grace at the beginning, but is to be finished by your works. It is your faith. If your faith is true, then it is secure. If your faith is true, then it is secure. It cannot be lost, for it does not depend upon you, but upon the finished work of Christ. You did not earn your salvation. Christ did, and He will keep you to the end. But, if you profess faith in Christ and you are living in sin, you should not expect to enjoy the assurance of your salvation. And by assurance, I mean the sense of peace and inner confidence that says, I know that I have been forgiven. I know that I am right with God. I know that I know Him. That is what I mean by assurance. If Indeed, if you have salvation in Christ, then your salvation is secure. Nothing can change that. It cannot be shaken at all, for it is rooted not in you, but in the decree of God and in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But your sense of assurance may be shaken. When you indulge in sin and live in it for some time, do not be surprised when your sense of assurance runs from you and you begin to question, do I really know Him? Have my sins really been forgiven? Am I really a child of God? It is not that the thing can be shaken in and of itself, but your perception of it can as you... you live in sin for a time. And so do not be surprised to read these words, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, and to think, I wonder if this is speaking of me, if indeed you are a professor of Christ, one who has faith in Christ or claims to, and you are living in sin. Indeed, the way that we come to have this inner peace and this sense of assurance and this confidence in Christ Jesus is when we have faith in Christ and then we live in obedience to His Word. 
Here is what John says about the matter. matter. The same John who wrote the book of Revelation also wrote 1 John 2, 3. And this is what he says. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Do you, do you hear him? He does not say, and by this we come to know him that we keep his commandments. In other words, the way to know God is to live in obedience to his law. That is not what he is addressing here. Uh, indeed, the way that we come to know God and to have a right relationship with him is through faith in Christ alone. But by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. By this we gain this sense of assurance, this confidence in Christ Jesus, this inner peace, You know that indeed we are a child of his when we keep his commandments. Uh, Christians, why do you play with sin? That is really what I'm questioning you about. Why do you play with sin? Why do you toy around with it? There is no joy in it. There is no peace in it. There is no satisfaction in it. It only brings all matter of discouragement to you and all matter of confusion. It only causes you to doubt and to struggle in your profession of faith. Indeed, if you have been made white by the blood of the Lamb, then go on and live holy. Live a life that is right before God and enjoy this confidence that comes when we do so. In verse 16, we learn that these are the words of Jesus, who is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the Christ King who was promised from long ago, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, and the son of David. And in verse 17, we hear this invitation. Everything turns to invitation here in verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Friend, the question I have of you here is, do you hear God calling you to come to Him through faith in Christ? Do you hear that call? Three times He says, come, Spirit of God and His bride, that is to say the church, say come. Do you hear their voice? Come to Christ, believe upon Him, and have your sins washed away. Those who have heard the call themselves and have responded in faith say, come. Again, they, they, they compel you, come. Are you thirsty? Do you recognize your need? Then come to Christ and drink of the water of life without price. It is free. It costs you nothing because Christ paid for it with his life. Do you hear the call? And I know that you hear it with your natural ears. You, you must. You hear it now. You can hear it with your natural ears. But that is not my question. My question is, do you hear it with your spiritual ears? Is the Holy Spirit at work within you, calling you effectually unto Christ? If so, then you are to repent. You're to believe upon Christ, professing your faith in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. And there may be some even here now in this room whom the Lord is calling to Himself. Three times it is repeated in this passage, Come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Him, and drink of the waters of life. Perhaps the Lord even now is calling you to Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. The invitation is to come to Christ, to be washed in His blood, to eat and drink unto life eternal. No one who responds to this call with faith in the heart will go away empty-handed. God has promised all who come to Christ and who have faith in Him will indeed have their sins washed away and will gain life eternal. The final exhortation to holy living comes in the form of a warning. And it is a warning to avoid false teaching, which inevitably will lead to wrong living. We are to avoid false teaching, which will inevitably lead to wrong living. 
In verse 18, we read these words, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. The question we must ask is, what does it mean to add to or take away from the words of the prophecy of this book? I know that some have used this verse to say that the canon is closed. Do you know what I mean by that? So here it is at the very end of our Bible, our our canon of Scripture, our collection of of inspired writings. And some have used this verse to say, see, there's there's, there's no more room for any other writings or books. I would argue for a closed canon, but not from this text, brothers and sisters. This has to do with the book of Revelation, and it has a very particular meaning. The meaning becomes clear when we read this text in light of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, where Moses says the same sort of thing. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2. Here again, the idea is is that the book of Revelation, like the law of Moses, which I have just read from, is to be kept. It is to be received. It is to be believed. And it is to be lived by. It was true of the law of Moses. It is also true of the book of Revelation. It is to be kept. Uh, You and I, friends, are not free to pick and choose what it is from God's word that we will receive and what it is that we will disregard. If you ask me, this is the dividing line that separates Christian denominations and Christians from other world religions. Uh, Men do make a practice of picking and choosing what it is from God's word that they will receive and what it is that they will disregard. This is the thing that false teachers do. Here is their posture. They stand above the word of God and they add to it and take away from it as they please. They take a position of superiority over the word of God. They decide for themselves what God has said. They add to the word of God and they take away from it as they please. You could reflect upon that later and consider uh, many denominations or religious leaders, uh, some who are in the headlines even now quite a bit, and you'll see that this is what they do. Uh, They decide for themselves what is truth. But a true child of God takes a different posture and would never take such liberties. God's people stand not over and above the word, but beneath it and in full submission to it. God's people receive His Word humbly. God's people believe God's Word, and then they do strive to live according to it. The one who claims to belong to God and yet makes a practice of adding to or taking away from the Word of God should not expect to eat from the tree of life, but will have instead the plagues described in this book as His inheritance. Uh, This here is a warning not to not add to the canon of Scripture, but it is a warning against false teaching within the church in particular, which will lead inevitably to all manner 
of immorality. That is what is being warned against here. Do not put up with false teaching, but humbly submit to the word of God. Believe it and live according to it. Brothers and sisters, we are to pursue holiness both in doctrine and in life. This involves submitting to the word of God, to live by it always. The book of Revelation concludes with this word. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with all. Amen. Friends, are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you ready for it? Or does the thought of His return cause you to tremble? It should cause us to say, the thought of it should cause us to say, Amen. It should cause us to rejoice. We should say, let it be so. It should not fill our heart with fear. If our hearts are filled with fear concerning the thought of the return of Christ, it reveals that something is terribly wrong within us. The one who is in Christ will look forward to his coming just as a bride looks forward to her wedding day. Amen, come Lord Jesus, is what we say. God, give us more of your grace to keep your word as we sojourn in this fallen world. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this book which has been a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Do help us to keep it, Lord. Uh, Very grand things were revealed in this book, things concerning who you are and concerning who we are and what it is that you are doing in this world and where all of human history is headed. Lord, uh, how could these things not have an impact upon us once we believe them? And so give us the faith to believe them and then give us the wisdom to live according to them. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with sins of various kinds. Would you give them victory over them, Lord? Uh, May they live for you and you alone. May they store up treasures in heaven. I pray for those who do not yet know Christ, who are still standing filthy in their sins. I pray that your Holy Spirit would call them to yourself. May they be washed by the blood of Jesus. May they come to profess their faith through the waters of baptism. May they join themselves to your church. May they grow from that day forward. Lord, I know that you are able to do this. You're able to transform hearts of stone. You're able to open eyes that are blind. You're able to unstop ears that are deaf. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do this work even now that your word would be effective, that your spirit would call sinners to repentance. God, this is our plea. You have done it for us, and we confess to you, Lord, that were it not for your grace and mercy, were it not for the finished work of Christ on the cross and for your word and for the activity of your Holy Spirit, we would be hopelessly lost. And so we give you thanks, God, for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. It is all by you. We've contributed nothing at all, for we are helplessly lost in our sin. And so we give you thanks for your grace and mercy. Help us now to live in obedience to you. Having been washed in the blood of Christ, help us to live holy and right before you all the days of our life. These things we pray in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen.